All right, uh, grab your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 11. And let's see if we can make some headway, speedy headway through Romans chapter 11, where the issue of uh, Israel is in view. Uh, of course, the whole argument is, um, is introduced in verse 1, where uh, the suggestion is made that God is totally finished. He has abandoned Israel and Paul says, absolutely not, no such thing. As, the whole thing is unthinkable. And then he, he builds an argument to defend his proposition. His proposition is, no, God is not finished with Israel. And then, he's, then he explains. And so we've made it uh, through verse 2. We, um, we looked at the word foreknew the last time we were together, which was two weeks ago. And um, very honestly, guys, verses um, uh, or the last half of verse 2, verse 3 and verse 4, is telling the story about Elijah. You remember on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal? I told that story two weeks ago. So it's in 1 Kings 19 if you want to go see the story again. But uh, we really don't need to cover verses 3 and 4. See how fast we're going? Because it's just a reference to that story um, where uh, Elijah is pitted against the prophets of Baal and uh, all those prophets of Baal are slain and then uh, for whatever reason... Elijah gets scared, or Jezebel says she's going to kill him, and so he runs. And, um, and he's sitting in a place where he's moping, and he says, you know, I'm the only one that's left. And God says, you are not. I've got 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I get up from there and get going. Anyway, so that's, that's the story. We really come to, to verse 5 tonight. Let me read you, um, let me start at 4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would would no longer be grace. The argument that we're going to look at tonight, or the, the portion of his argument, is, is contained in verse 5. Again, he's trying to defend the, the, the proposition that he's made. No, absolutely not. God is not finished with Israel. Now, there are, um, there are a couple of words in verse 5 that are key to his understanding. One is the word remnant. The other is the word chosen. And then the word grace is important, but that's going to come back to us in verse 6. So we'll leave it for verse 6. But those, uh, those two words uh, in verse 5 there, remnant and chosen, they're not extraordinary words. They're normal Greek words that you find. Uh, they're not uh, anything. Uh, that word um, chosen is the word ekloge, which is, find, is found several times used that way. Um, but the word, let's, let's concentrate on the word remnant for a minute, and then we'll come to the other one. Uh, it's a, it's a, a frequently used word in the Old Testament. It's found like 62 times. In the New Testament, however, it's only found three times. It's found in Acts 15, it's found in uh, Romans 9, and it's found here. That's the last time it's, uh, those, those are the only three times it's found. But uh, it's a, a remnant refers to a small surviving part of a bigger something, like a carpet remnant. Um, in, in the Old Testament, it normally referred to a small number of, of survivals, of survivors after an invasion. That is, they were, there was a remnant of people that survived this, this uh, horrible invasion on a, of an alien body. So it's just that, you know, the word that you normally understand, that's what it, it's what it is. It's, God is referring to a remnant, a small surviving 
part of a bigger something. And he says, at the present time, there is a remnant. Now, guys, um, with, with that statement, Paul is adding a couple of things to his argument. Let me, let me mention those two things. His argument is, of course, um, that no, God is not finished with Israel. Now, then he goes on to talk about, I mean, I'm a Jew. That was the first part of his argument. Then he comes down to verse 5 and he adds this. There is a remnant. As, I mean, at, at this very time, as there is, so too at this present time, there is a remnant. Um, the, the, the point is, God would have been proved faithful even if there had only been one Jew. That is, me, Paul. But his, his grace is extended beyond just me. It's extended far beyond just a single man. It's gone to a whole remnant of 7,000 in Elijah's day. Now, we talked about this earlier, and, and I'm, just, I'm just merely guessing. I'm just pulling a, a, a figure out of the air. I don't know the population of Israel during Elijah's lifetime. But I'm just going to give you a figure. Let's say there were 100,000 Jews in Israel. There was probably 10 times that many, but let's just say there was 100,000. God says there were 7,000 of them, a remnant, a small part, a small surviving part of a bigger something. So what, what, what the, the argument is, no, 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 no. God would have been proved faithful if there had only been one Jew that had been saved, that, me, that being me, says Paul. But he didn't do that. There was, as in the time of Elijah, there were 7,000 in that, out of that larger group. He says, um, so too at the present time. So you see, it's pretty simple. He's saying, um, you know, out of all of Israel, I'm not the only one. And do you remember um, those passages in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost and 3,000 souls were converted? you remember that? So he's simply saying that, that, that the, um, the faithfulness of God is not proved simply by the saving of one Jew, me. But it is, as, just like in, the, in Elijah's day there was a remnant, so too at this present day. There is a remnant. It's a small surviving portion of a larger whole. But there is, a, there is people beyond just me, which demonstrates again, uh, um, um, God has not been finished with Israel. He, it would have been enough to save just one. But God has gone way beyond that um, to save this remnant that even exists today. That's, that's part of the argument. The other thing that I think is a kind of a new feature of the argument is this use of Elijah's story. Um, that is, referring to that story that they all knew about Elijah and the believing remnant in Elijah's day. What Paul has done is simply said, that's not an exception to the rule. That is, what you're seeing today, that the larger part of Israel is not embracing Christ, but there is a remnant, is the same way that God operated back in the days of Elijah. There was this larger group that was unbelieving, even committed to Baal. But God had a remnant in that. What you're seeing today, 
when Paul is writing, is no different than what you saw in Elijah's day. Um, This is not an anomaly. This is not a deviation of how God operates. And that is what he said, guys, and I've been trying to tell you this again and again, out of Romans chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, um, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Do you see that? Not all who are descended, not all who are ethnically Jewish, belong to Israel. There's a remnant, though. There's a remnant. Uh, There was a remnant in Elijah's day, and Paul is suggesting that there is a remnant in this day, our day, my day, right now. Now, um... Let me, let me make a couple, of less, a couple of applications and then we'll move to this other word chosen by grace. Gang, first of all, God has always got a remnant. And normally, it's a lot larger than you thought it was. You know, um, when you look around America today, um, one of my heroes, well, I guess he's my big hero, R.C. Sproul uh, used to say the most persecuted minority in America is the Christian church. Don't you feel that? Don't you, don't you see it? You, know, you read that stuff about what happened in India. And, you know, it's just kind of the, the, the crowd is shrinking. Uh, Steve Torgerson, interestingly, talked about in China. Now, I don't know how they know this, but just take it with a grain of salt. But he said it was 185,000 Christians. Uh, there, would be, there were 185,000 new Christians every week in China. <laughs> That's a pretty big crowd. But over here, it seems like the walls are closing in on us, isn't there? Well, let me just tell you this, guys. There's a remnant. There's always a remnant. God has always got his people. You know, it's always interested me that Ronnie Stevens goes over to Iraq and teaches a Bible course. Now, he's in Kurdistan, which is the safer place. But you know what? There's a church in Iraq. There's a, there's a remnant. I always a remnant, and it's normally bigger than the one that we thought it was. You know, we say, oh, woe is me. The culture's wicked. Virtue is declining. I'm the only one that's left. I might as well give up. No. There's a remnant. There's always a remnant. There's always going to be a remnant. And then usually that remnant's bigger than you thought. You know, one of the most encouraging things to me in, in our missions conference last week was last Wednesday night, when I put all those missionaries across that stage, those of you who didn't come, may the fleas of a thousand camels nest in your armpits. Um, but you put all those people across the stage, and I thought, holy moly, in our one city, look at all these people that are out, out there trying to build a kingdom. Look at all of them. But anyway, there's a remnant, guys. There's always a remnant, and it's usually bigger than you thought. The other thing that I think this says is there is a characteristic about this remnant. And the characteristic is... They have not bowed their knee to Baal. The remnant is characterized by the having not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, guys, let me just tell you a quick snippet about Baal worship because it was, um, it was a particularly corrupt practice, which, interestingly, was going on in Israel, practiced by the majority of Jews in Elijah's day. But the... Um, um, the reason that Baal worship even existed is because Israel failed. Remember when Joshua brought Israel into the promised land and he said, now, and God said, exterminate everybody, and they didn't? Remember that? Well, they didn't 
and the, uh, the, um, the consequence of their not obeying was that they were Baal worship. They were still around and they, and they began to bounce back. But Baal worship consisted of a couple of, there was a, two main emphases. <laughs> Sex and materialism. In fact, in Baal worship, sex was meant to ensure the materialism. Because it went like this. The practice of sacred or temple prostitution was supposed to guarantee fertility in the seasons. A a recurrence of a good harvest kind of thing. Um, And of course, the the material well-being of the land depended upon harvest. And so the temple prostitutes and the prostitution that that, that ensued was supposed to ensure that the crops are going to be good. Now, isn't that convenient? I'm only doing this so that my family will prosper. So, I mean, that was kind of characteristic of, um, of Baal worship. But my point is we have the same thing today. But... Um, what we find in America as we chase down these twin expressways of sexual promiscuity and blatant materialism, um, but with us, it's reversed. The wealth is intended to ensure sex or at least sexual favors, or at least to make sex more pleasant rather than the other way around. But it's still the, the same two issues. Or at least they're two biggies. Sex and materialism. Just like Baal worship. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, the remnant. The remnant has not bowed their knee to Baal. You know, this culture that we're in, um, I had a man call me this morning and he said, <laughs> I won't tell you what he said, but I'll just say this. He said, if one of the two particular candidates gets elected, He's absolutely convinced it's the judgment on America. Now I'll let you figure out which one it is. That's that's your business. But, you know, um, this culture in which we live um, it may very well be on this same slippery slope to damnation. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, God has a remnant. And this remnant has not bowed the knee to the... Um, to the bale of sex and materialism. There are devout people who are, who are trying to live for God and do the right thing in the midst of some pretty difficult circumstances. You know, that ought to encourage us to know that there are people who um, really want to do right and are trying to do right. And the, and the role of the Christian church ought to be to come alongside them and encourage them in that process of trying to to keep their knees unbent to bail. You know, um, there's a statement, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know exactly, but it's in, I want to say it's Luke 12. And Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says, um, when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on the earth? The answer to that question, ladies and gentlemen, is yes. He will find faith on the earth. And, and, and if he doesn't find it anyplace else, might he find it out of us? 
the remnant who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. Now, ladies and gentlemen, stay with me. What is it that makes certain that a remnant will always be in existence? The text tells you. They are chosen by grace. Why can we be absolutely certain that a remnant will always exist? Because God creates and chooses a people, a remnant, and and preserves them by grace. Oh me, here we are. We're back to that idea of chosenness, aren't we? By the way, it's going to appear again in verse 7. Um probably as we, before we break for Christmas. Um, you know, I really thought I was, well, I guess I was just hoping that I was finished with uh, the chosenness back in Romans 9. But here we are again um, to consider it all over again. So we shall. You know, guys, um, it's a sadness to me that people react so negatively to this whole idea And yet, I want you to notice how it's being used by Paul in this particular passage. What he is saying is that the grounds of assuring us that there is going to be an ever-present remnant is that God makes certain of it because he establishes and creates and chooses them by grace. The the point is, had not God chosen a remnant, then no remnant would exist. The culture would would swamp them. Okay, I want you to look at something with me. Uh, But first, let me quote a a verse of Scripture for you. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 11. And I'm going to read it for you. And it says this. None righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Did you hear that? No one seeks for God. Now, with that in mind, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 14 because that's where it's it's quoted from Psalm 14. I want to show you something that Psalm 14 does. <clears throat> Got it? It's in the middle of your Bibles. Um... Psalm 14, let me read you verses 2 and 3. Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Do you get that? Pretty simple. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, what's the word? It's a, uh, it's an anthropomorphism. Uh, you know, God's not peering over the the, uh, the walls of heaven, but I mean, it's just giving you an idea that uh, God looks down from heaven on the children of man and he sees to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. I wonder if there's anybody seeking after God down there. Now notice what the next verse says. Nope. Not a one. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God looks over from heaven and he says, I wonder if anybody's going to seek me. 
And what does he find? Nope. Not a one. There is none that seeketh after God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is using that idea and and suggesting, but then God determined that he was going to make sure that there was a remnant that was going to seek him. And so he set about choosing them by grace. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, that's how Paul's using it. He's using it as a whole grounds of celebration. Oh, the glory of it all that God looks down and says, well, there's not a one of them that would seek me. And so I am going to have to work in them in such a way that they will seek me. I am going to create and choose a people who will seek me. And we say, I don't like that. When Paul is using it as a, as a reason to celebrate, yay, there's always going to be a remnant because God's going to do it. And we say, uh-uh, I don't like that at all. It's, it's, a, it's a sad commentary on the 21st century church that we react with such negativity when Paul is using it as a means by which we should celebrate. Or as the grounds of our celebration. You know, I, I, I used this quote back in Romans 9 when we were talking about verse 13. And, and Romans 9.13, if you're not familiar, says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. People just despise that verse. And, uh, and I quoted to you then from Charles Spurgeon who said, <laughs> Oh me, the amazing thing to me This is Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, The amazing thing to me is not that God hated Esau. The amazing thing is that he loved Jacob. See, Spurgeon's perspective is, Oh, wow, there's none that seeketh after God, but God intervened to to draw and make sure that they came. and, And we say, I don't like that. Spurgeon says, Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me that what overcomes me is that he chose to save anyone. Do you see the difference in the perspective, ladies and gentlemen? I, I'll tell you a story and then I'll, I'll quit. Um, the last of September, I got a phone call. It was kind of comical. I mean, the phone call was kind of comical. It was, it was from a man who doesn't go to this church. I've known him for a long, long time, and and um, um, he was calling me. He was he's involved in this particular ministry, and he he wanted to get me involved, and he wants to enlist my support. And will you support this? And you know, and all this business. And you know, and and I go back with the man, all, really, all the way to college. Um, and you know, he's he's older, but. Um, but, I mean, I've just known him a long time. He's a, he's a really a sweet guy. He's a, you know, kind of a hail fellow, well-met, very personable, very, you know, back-slapping, uh, uh, my kind of guy, you know. So, um, 
uh, he calls me and, and he was telling me about this thing that he wanted me to get behind and, you know, get excited about and, and support and yada, yada, yada. And, and, um, and so I, I listened with, uh, with, you know, with being very polite and the sweet, kind, gentle person that I am and, um, listened to what he had to say. And then, and, and folks, as, as God is my witness, I don't, I do not know how the conversation turned to this. I do not know. I don't remember. Well, why did he say that? I don't remember any of that. All I know is that he took off on this book. <laughs> now, you, you've heard of this book, I bet, uh, The Purpose Driven uh, Life by Rick Warren. I mean, the thing didn't sell but about 40 million copies. And, I mean, uh, you know, remember the guy that um, abducted that woman and she was reading this over in Atlanta and she read this to him and, and he made a profession of faith and saved her life and all this. I mean, this is a good book, much unlike The Shack. This is a good book. This is one, if you haven't read it, you know, go read it. I mean, this is this was good. I mean, it ran through the Christian community, and, and I just delighted that it did. And, and, you know, this is a good book, and Rick Warren's a good guy. Oh, that, that I could have one-fiftieth of the ministry that, 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 that this brother has. Um, by the way, you do know the story about Rick Warren, that uh, C.H. Spurgeon, the guy I just quoted, sent his... I think it was his great-great-grandfather to Kentucky to plant a church. How about that? Anyway, he's got a little, got a little blood in him. But anyway, um, so this caller, this guy that calls me, took off, just attacked Rick Warren, said, I hate him. I thought, oh, gosh. I mean, what did poor old Rick do? You know, I, you know, I, and then <clears throat> he quoted a sentence, I guess it was a sentence or two, maybe it was just one sentence, I think it was, just one sentence of the book, and he knew the page number where this sentence, sentence is found in this book. And he even said to me, he even said, are you impressed that I even know the page number where that's found? And I said, oh yeah, really impressed, really impressed. That, that really turns my crank there. Right? Um, so he, um, he tells him the page number, and um, <laughs> he said, I hate that Rick Warren. Because on page 235 of his book, he said this. And by the way, he quoted him correctly. I went and got my book. It was at home. But I, I went and got my book, and I looked on page 235, and there it is, right there. If you'd like to see it afterwards, I'll be glad to show it to you. But Rick Warren says, right here, he says, Not only did God shape you before your birth, he planned every day of your life to support his shaping process. That's the sentence that this man despised in this book and said that he couldn't stand Rick Warren. And then he went on to say, he's just a hyper-Calvinist. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm fairly informed as to the discussions that are taking place in theological circles. You know, you pay me for that. I bet you you don't know what the NPP is, do you? Oh, poor you. Uh, but I'm supposed to, and I do. But, um, but the point is, I, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I know fairly well what's going on in theological debate in the, in the world today. And my point is this. I don't know of anybody, anybody, anybody that would call Rick Warren a hyper-Calvinist. I don't know of anybody except this guy. <laughs> did 
just hate him. He's caused. And, and now let me, let me just show you. Let me read that again because I want to read you the next sentence. He says, not only did God shape you before your birth, he planned every day of your life to support his shaping process. David, the psalmist, the guy in here, David continues. The next sentence that's in italics here is a quote from Psalm 139, verse 16. If you would like to read it, I encourage you to do so. Psalm 139, 16 says this. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day passed. Now, could I, could I combine the two sentences for you? The first one is Rick Warren. The second one is Psalm 139.16. You got that? Pretty simple. Not only, here go, not only did God shape you before your birth, he planned every day of your life to support his shaping process. David says, every day of my life was recorded in your book Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And there's there's a little three which says to you, it's a scripture verse, and you look in the back, but of course you didn't. It's in Psalm 139, verse 16. Now, guys, do you see what Rick Warren did? Rick Warren made a statement um, that every day in your life, he planned every day in your life to support a shaping process. And then he quotes a verse from Psalm 139, verse 16, to support his statement. And this man calls me and rails against Rick Warren, calling him something that's absolutely untrue, not because, not because Rick Warren has proved himself unfaithful, but because he doesn't like what Rick Warren said. And I'm here to tell you, Rick Warren basically just quoted a verse out of Psalm 139. So this fella doesn't like that idea that God is involved in planning your days. He doesn't like that idea. And so um, his guide, the man who called me, his guide to what is true is not what the Bible says, but what he thinks the Bible ought to say. It's on page 235. Did you see that? I can't stand it. Are you proud that I know what page it's on? I can't, I can't stand him because he's just this high brain. And basically what he did, that is Rick Warren, um, made a statement, supported it with the verse of Scripture, and this man says, I don't like that idea. I don't like that idea. It doesn't matter to me that it grows right out of this book. Because very honestly, my authority is not this book. I don't determine what I believe based on what I think this book says. I determine what I believe based on what I think it ought to say. I 
I just tell you that story, ladies and gentlemen, to say to you, I really don't know, and I don't want to say I don't care because I do care. I really don't know what you're going to do with this whole concept of God choosing by grace. But all I can tell you is this. I didn't write that. And you responding negatively to the whole idea is committing the same mistake of the man who called me and said, I can't stand Rick Warren. Because for you, the issue is not what the Bible says. The issue is what I think the Bible ought to say. Gang, go to your Bibles and let's make a deal. For the next six months, you're simply going to read them like this. That is, I am going to let them, this, have supremacy over me. And I am going to read it to find out what it says instead of lording over it to tell it what it ought to say. Gang, I, I know it's not, it's not, what's the word? Um, it's somewhat counterintuitive to say something like this. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All I can tell you is that it says it. And so whatever intuitions you might have about what it ought to say, you need to set those aside and conform your thinking to what it does say. And what verse 5 says is this. There will always be a remnant. And God's going to make sure of it. Because the remnant is chosen by grace. Let's quit there. Lord, I, I do pray that we will become um, people who yield and submit to this book, not asking it to submit to us. And I pray that we'll find the great joy of discovering what you've done, who you are, and how you would have us respond to that. And so, Father, give us teachable spirits, willing, moldable, gentle hearts that love to find themselves being shaped by the great truth contained in your word. We thank you for the, the assurance that there will always be a remnant, and there will always be a remnant because you have chosen one by grace. Sovereign, unconditioned grace. We glory in that. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.